Amen, amen. It's good to be in front of you again, Redeemer. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Psalm 121. making our way through the Psalms of Ascent, and we'll finish them this summer, and in the fall, more than likely, we'll be going to the book of Ruth, and so um, we're going to be in these Psalms for the duration of the summer. Psalm 121, a song of ascent. I lift up my eyes to the hills, from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. Father, we uh, bow before you, Father, Son, and Spirit, and we bow with thankful hearts that there is a lot of news, there are a lot of words, there are a lot of assumptions, and yet we come to the one who is the beginning and who is the end, who is the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is and who was and forever will be. And we thank you, Lord, that you have chosen to speak. You've chosen to speak through prophets and through apostles. And in these final days, you've spoken to us through Christ, your son. And you were pleased, Lord, to have your word recorded and defended and preserved. That we might have it now as a sure and anchor and steady anchor for our souls. And so we turn to you as we turn to your word and pray that you, the author of your word, would be glorified through it and that we would be people who do not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from your mouth. Comfort us, forgive us, tune our hearts to uh, ponder the beautiful things and the beautiful excellencies from your word. Would you speak through your servant, I pray for Jesus' sake, amen. So uh, this week in the New York Times, there was an op-ed piece entitled, Waking Up in 2030. And the gist of the piece, and I'll read portions of it, but the gist of the piece is that uh, there are things that are happening right here and right now that we thought would happen in 2030. And because of kind of where we are in this unique moment, and a lot of things have accelerated, and, and they're happening here and now. And so I'll, I'll read parts of it. There is something peculiar about time during this pandemic. On the one hand, there is a feeling that the normal calendar has simply stopped. School schedules and sports seasons have evaporated. One homebound day passes much like another. It feels like a hiatus the intermission maybe between Christmas and the new year. Yet at the same time, there's a feeling of acceleration, of changes that might have otherwise dragged out across a decade. They're now piling upon one another. 
the George Floyd protests and their electoral consequences, the changes happening to cities and corporations and colleges and, yes, even churches. In each case, these trends that were working slowly have seemingly speeded up. This means that when the coronavirus era finally ends, there will be a Rip Van Winkle feeling a sense of being asleep and waking to normality, except that what we will have time traveled and the normality will resemble the year 2030 as it might have been without the virus, rather than simply turning to 2021 or 2022. But what does 2030 in 2022 look like in higher education? A similar transformation is being pulled forward Colleges were already expecting a grim landscape in the later 2020s because of the 2010 birth rates were so low. But now a decline in foreign enrollment and an acceleration in online learning, it will threaten marginal state schools and possibly close small liberal arts colleges much sooner. In religion, the pandemic may strengthen certain forms of faith, but that won't save some institutional churches from what Fordham's David Gibson calls a religion recession. Smaller churches may suffer the most for the same tight margin, high overhead reasons that restaurants are going under. Finally, in corporate America, there may be trends both towards consolidation and dispersal. The former because even federal intervention probably won't prevent small businesses from going under while bigger businesses ride things out, accelerating the existing drift towards a less entrepreneurial and more monopolist America. Look, this is an opinion piece. This may or may not be a reality. It doesn't account for God's involvement in history Yet some of this should unsettle us. The idea that churches closing at a faster rate, businesses evaporating, jobs gone, schools gone, education changed, and we're in it. And we don't know what 2022 will look like. The future for many Americans, even if you don't feel it right now, is that of unpredictability, vulnerability, and danger. Enter in Psalm 21. We praise God for passages like this one because they remind us that dangers may come, uncertainty may be in front of us, but we serve a God who keeps, who is with, who guards, and will bring his people home. And that's kind of what I want us to think through in this passage. Now, there's some debate. If you look at the passage and the way it lifts, you can, you can see the shift in the pronouns, right? Look at verses 1 and 2. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help come 
My help comes from the Lord, right? So you get this sense of I and me and my. But then look at the turn right there in verse 3 through verse 8. The turn is your. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Scholars are divided. Is this one person having an internal dialogue with himself or herself, right? Or is this perhaps a confident worship leader in verses 1 through 2, and perhaps a person who's not as confident, who needs to be convinced, who needs to be reminded. That's kind of how I'm interpreting this. You can disagree, and, and, and scholars disagree, and I don't think it changes the overall meaning of the passage. The first thing I want us to consider with this passage is the dangerous and unpredictable stretches of our journey home. The dangerous and unpredictable stretches of our journey home. Traveling to Jerusalem was dangerous. The ascent to Jerusalem, which stood 3,500 feet above sea level from, let's say, the town of Jericho, which stood 800 feet below sea level, that's 3,500 feet of ascent in a 17-mile stretch. That's 200 feet per mile if you were traveling to Jerusalem through Jericho. Klein Snodgrass writes this, the the terrain is barren, almost void of any vegetation, and it's hilly with numerous hiding places for bandits along this notoriously treacherous road. Consider this, the average, this is average hiker who wants to hike the Pacific Crest or the Appalachian or Continental Divide trails, you'll get eight to 10 miles per day. An experienced hiker can do 16. In a 17-mile stretch from Jericho to Jerusalem, you're talking at least two days maybe three for some of us in the room. And think about when this psalm was written. There was no such thing as LED lights. There were no Yeti coolers. The best you had was a torch that let you see a couple steps in front of you. You didn't have cars where you could be wrapped in steel. You didn't have the the, the protection of a vehicle. You didn't have the the newly developed hiking shoes that you can go buy right now and spend 300 bucks on them. You had none of that. What you had was Ike and Mike in a torch, towing children and animals. This is why I think when the psalmist says, when I look at the hills, I think fear begins to set in. The terrain is brutal. The lack of technology makes the journey home difficult. And on top of this, we have the teachings of Jesus, right? In Luke chapter 10, he gives us the parable of the Good Samaritan, that a Jewish man was leaving Jerusalem, going down more than likely roads that these pilgrims would have traveled up. And it's there that he's robbed, there that he's beaten, there that he's left for dead. In other words, when I think when the psalmist is making their way to Jerusalem and he sees the hills and he starts to make the climb, that uncertainty 
and danger awaits. The hills were not a source of comfort. It's a source of fear. This is why in the psalm we see all of these things that can threaten as they turn and make this stretch home. That the sun can strike by day and the moon by night. And not necessarily the moon, but the darkness of the night and and the, the, the unseen things that are out there lurking. The slipping to the right or to the left and falling off of a ravine and, and in, down into the, 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 the valley or the evil that lurks in verse 7. He will keep you from this evil. In other words, I think what Psalm 121 is reminding us is that to get home, we have to pass through uncertainty and danger and hardship. And is this physical? Of course. The sun burns the body. That if, you, if, if your feet slip and you fall, you twist an ankle or you bruise a rib. This evil, some evil can attack the body, but, but, but is there more here? I think so. Is there not an inextricable link between what happens to our bodies and what happens to our souls? Last December, I had a ruptured disc. And I kind of thought that this is nothing, man. We'll do some rehab and I'll be fine. And man, when I tell you that, like, depression, like, it hurt to stand. It hurt to sleep. It hurt to walk. It hurt to preach. It hurt to do things that I took for granted. And in my heart, man, like, I was bitter. I was bitter towards God. I felt like he was distant, that there, was, there is a link. And, and this is not just from personal experience. I think when you lay what we see in this passage on top of what Jesus does, and let's say in Matthew 13, when he gives the parable of the kingdom of God, is like a, a man who sows seed, and the word of God goes out, and he gives us the four types of soils, and he says that some of the word Some of the seeds, it fell on thin soil, and the sun baked it and cooked it, that it might not bear fruit and grow and develop roots. And then Jesus himself later interprets the sun. He actually says the sun is a metaphor for persecution and tribulation. He actually says the sun can do to the body what persecution and tribulation can do to the soul. And so as we read this psalm, it's a metaphor. The the, the travelers didn't just experience physical danger as they made their way to Jerusalem. There's a spiritual metaphor here that as they journeyed home to the city of God, tribulation, danger, vulnerability that they had to go through it. And if you and I are honest, don't we? How many of you, perhaps when you were a new believer and you envisioned what faith in Christ would be like, you know how little kids can draw those paintings or those photos or those pictures with crayons and 
They got mommy and daddy holding hands, and they got a little dog, and they got a house, and they got a picket fence, and they got flowers growing, and they got the sun shining, and, and, and the clouds are not gloomy. How many of us kind of thought that that's what the Christian life would be like? Everything's going to be happy, and it's going to be good, and my kids are all going to be saved, and we're going to all get along, and my marriage will always be right. And then you live long enough? That ain't what your picture look like no more, is it? It's not. You go through hard seasons. Or we're depressed. And we're sad. And we're lonely. And we're isolated. And our kids keep us up at night because we're worried. And our own sin does not go away. I don't want you to be surprised, beloved, to get to where God is taking us, and that's to be with him. Do not be surprised by the dangerous stretches of the journey. They're real. Now, when these moments come, we all seek help from somewhere or something What do you turn to when these moments come? The psalmist is kind of calling us to turn to someone. The help we seek, but it ultimately comes from the God who keeps. And that's what I want to focus on in our second point. It's a longer point, and the third point will be really brief. So just so that your mind doesn't think that all points are equal, this one's going to stretch out a little bit because there's a lot that the psalmist is saying about God. But the third one, will it'll be really brief. The second point is our keeping creator and present God is with us. Now, I think there are three overarching characteristics about God that the psalmist is kind of drawing out for us. The first is creator. Now, notice the movement from verses 1 to verses 2. And then this is my translation, right? This is how I'm translating verse 1, so, so bear with me. When I lift my eyes up to the hills and see the hard parts of the journey and begin to fear what might happen, from where does my help come? And then enter verse 2. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He finds comfort in this reality that he serves a God who made heaven and earth. This is Genesis language. He's calling our attention back to how the Bible begins. In the beginning, the Lord God made heaven and earth. And if you study Genesis 1, then you know that he did this just by speaking it. There was nothing there, and God caused something to come out of nothing. But I think there's more that the psalmist is doing here, and it's beautiful. It's a beautiful poetic technique. It's what we call mirrorism. Now, we use mirrorism in our language today. You might say that I looked high and low for something, right? You might say I searched every nook and every cranny, right? Or if, if you come from maybe more rural parts of America, 
then you might say, I will eat a pig from the rooter to the tutor. What does that mean? The rooter is kind of the snout. It's where they use their nose to kind of root things up. And what's the tutor? It's like the tip of the tail. And so a person who uses that language, the rooter to the tutor, what they're saying is, I'll eat pig tongues, I'll eat pig feet, I'll eat pig intestines, I'll make bacon, ham, you name it. I will eat it all. When someone searches high and low, they're saying, I've looked highest as I could and lowest as I could. When they say nook and cranny, they're saying there is not one place in this house I haven't looked. And so when the psalmist says our Lord has made the heavens and the earth, he's not just talking about two things. He's saying he's made the heavens and the tip of the highest point of the heavens and the earth and everything in between. Therefore, that mountain is his mountain. That dirt is his dirt. That oxygen is his oxygen. In other words, he's saying there is not one part of creation, seen and unseen, that the Lord does not say, it's mine. It obeys me. And that's comforting when you have a God who can claim that type of power. And then notice the turn. My help is the maker of heaven and the earth, but notice the movement. We're going to move now to this sense of helper, but he says he's my help. Like, whoa, brother, how can you claim that the one who stands over creation is yours? That's like me telling you, I have a pet lion. No, you don't. No, I don't. I have a pet shark. No, you don't. You're like one meal away from being lion food. You don't have a lion. No one has a pet. I mean, people may do it, but you get the point. That's what he's saying. The creator of all things is my help. Now, that word for help, it's the word easer. It means to come alongside, to be a strong ally, to be an ever faithful, present one. Now, how big was this in the life of a first century Jew or the author of the Psalms? This idea that God was their help? This was big. And I think this is the reason it translates over into the New Testament when Jesus says, it is good that I go away because I will ask a father and he will give you a helper, the Holy Spirit. This, this image of coming alongside and coming in and drawing near, that's what's happening here. But, but think, about, um, think about Moses, for example that we see this used in Exodus when, when they come out of Egypt, out of bondage, and they've just overthrown Pharaoh by God's mighty hand and the outstretched arm. And Jethro, Moses' father, runs to greet him, and, and, and Moses starts to tell him, we just defeated Pharaoh. And Jethro's like, whatever, like, whatever. And then, and, and then Moses goes on and on to tell him, no, this is what God did. This is what God did. This is what God did. And Jethro is glad. And then 
Jethro gives Moses his son. And do you want to know what Moses' son's name was? Eleazar. God, Eli, or El, Ezer, is my help. That's what Moses named his son. That's how much he was so impressioned by the faithfulness of God that he named his son that. Can you imagine that? Come here, God is my help. Stop climbing up the walls, God is my help. That everywhere he went, every time he called his name, he was making a declaration about the character of God. And when he went to his grave and saw his son for the last time, God is my help. The God who's been with me be with you. This idea of help that you see in the passage, this is describing God's ministry of presence. Because he is near, he will not let your foot be moved. He will not let you slip and fall. If you have kids, then you've probably taught them how to ride bikes at one point. And you know how it goes. They're on the training wheels. And they're just going. And then one day they said, Mom or Dad, I want to ride. So you take the training wheels off. And what you do, you walk with them. You're walking right there with them, alongside of them. And they're wobbly. You're helping them get their balance. And they're wobbly. And you're teaching them how to balance. And then finally they kind of get it. And then you do this number where you're walking with them, and then you're running with them, and then you kind of push them. And you know that that to learn how to ride a bike, you have to fall. And yet you keep running, and you keep running, and you keep running. And then they get it, and then you keep running, and then they get it. And here's the thing about parenting. When do we stop coming alongside of our kids? I think that's a metaphor. Aren't we, don't we try to be alongside of them in a different way when they're teenagers and they go to college and they call us when they had a bad breakup and they call us because they're dating someone and they call us and need advice? When we sign up for this parenting thing, do we, are we not committing to walk alongside of them, and it may look different at different stages until we die. See, that's the image of God here. He walks alongside of his people. He never slumbers. That's the state. Like, think about a slumber party. It's a great idea, right? I'm going to go somewhere, and I'm going to spend a night, and we're going to stay up all night, And around 5 a.m., the slumbering happens. You need to go to sleep, but you want to stay awake. And so the slumbering side of it is you're somewhere between fully awake and fully asleep. And then you pay for it the next day or you crash because your body needs rest. Here's what the psalmist is saying. God isn't like that. He doesn't grow tired. There is never a point in any point of the day where he is slumbering and is not attuned to what his people are going through. The Bible is saying he is there, and because he is alongside of us, he will not let us ultimately fall off the bike. He's going to hold us and walk with us. 
And then he moves and he gives us the image of God being a keeper. And this is the most used idea in the passage. It's in verse 3. He who keeps you will not slumber. Verse 4, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Verse 5, the Lord is your keeper. Verse 7, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. Verse 8, the Lord will keep your going out and coming in. The word for keeper, this too goes back to Genesis. Do you remember Genesis 2 when the Lord formed Adam? You're to work and to keep the garden. Keep it. Tend to it, guard it, watch over, obey me, serve me, and keep. And does it not come up again in Genesis 4? When Cain kills Abel, what does he say? Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, you're his keeper. Yes, God did not just want you to keep plants. He wanted you to keep human life. And here's what the psalmist is doing in our passage. Humans may abdicate our responsibility to keep, but that does not nullify the keeping nature of God. He's the God who keeps. And he does something here that is logically beautiful, y'all. All right, when you're making persuasive arguments, you can go from the lesser to the greater. And Jesus does this, right? He does this in Matthew 5. He says, look at the lilies of the field and the birds of the heavens. He says, your father clothes them and he feeds them. And then he makes the catapult. He says, they're alive today and tomorrow they're thrown into the oven. How much more valuable are you than they? In other words, what Jesus does, if you look at a plant that your father cares for and clothes, and if you look at birds, he makes the jump. Your father loves you more than those. So if he takes care of the lesser things, how much more will he care for you? It's a logical argument from the lesser to the greater that Jesus makes. But the psalmist in our passage, he goes from the greater to the lesser. Now, where do we see it? Look at the language there, right there in verse 4. Behold, he who keeps Israel. Whoa. You mean to tell me God keeps his people? He brought millions of them out of bondage? He's been faithful for thousands of generations to keep this people in the Old Testament with these people birthed out of Abraham's loins, united to him by faith, and now the church, united to him by faith, people of every nation and tribe and tongue. What have the people of Israel, both literal and spiritual, what have they endured in the Bible and in history? People have tried to kill the Jews. The Jews have been deported. The Jews have been almost wiped off the planet. And here's what the psalmist is saying. The Lord keeps them as a people. And think about the church. See, this is where the author of the op-ed is wrong. Churches may close. But God's church is going to forever thrive because the keeper of God's church is not the church. It's God himself. And so here's what the psalmist is saying. 
do you not see the history of God? He's been keeping his people forever and forever and forever. Now, look at how he goes from the greater to the lesser. Did you notice that the you that you see all in this, this psalm, it's not plural. This is not you all. This is you in the singular. It's as if the psalmist is saying, God has kept millions for gazillions of time in manifold situations, manifold countries, manifold continents. You think he got a problem keeping you? individual person who lives to be maybe 80 on this country that isn't even 500 years old? You, you, you think this is a problem? It is not. He's the keeper of Israel. and He will keep you, individual believer. And then mirrorism shows up again, y'all. Yeah. All right, y'all ever, all right, so let's say a, 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 a mom and dad, they have six kids, and they raise six kids, and let's say that their oldest now has their first child, and mom and dad are still in their right mind, still agile, still present, and so their oldest kid has their first child, and they go to their grandpa, to their mom's, mom's, mom and dad's house and say, mom and dad, can y'all watch our kid for two hours? And the new mom is just panicking, oh, do this, and don't do this, and don't do this. At some point, the mama is going to say, child, don't you think I got this? I done raised six of y'all. You think I can't watch your baby for two hours if you don't get out of my house and go have a date night with your husband? That's what the psalmist is saying. He can keep us. And then mirrorism shows up again in our passage. Did you notice? All right. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. And all of the time in between. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in. And all of the time in between. He will keep you now and forevermore. And all of the time in between. In other words, he's piling up these opposite things to give us confidence that there is not one situation, not one season, not one place that we can go where God's keeping power does not extend there. Think on these things. When the journey gets hard and it's taxing and it's unpredictable, Think on these things. As mentioned, I think this psalm is being led by one who is confident in verses 1 and 2. And he turns to a fellow traveler who is afraid and who needs to be convinced. Who's the confident one? It's not you and I. You see, I think the confident one in this psalm that is Jesus, that he turns to you and I, and he says, 
I'm the one. I see the true danger coming over the hills. I'm the one. Justice and mercy will meet on me. I'm the one. I will taste the, the, the wrath of God. I'm the one who will lay down my life. And I'm the one that my father raised from the dead. And I'm the one who is seated at his right hand. And I'm the one I can confidently turn to all those in me and say, because I have tasted the most dangerous things under the heavens, because I have laid my life down, because I have united you to me forever, what do you have to fear? I'm your God, and nothing will separate you from the love of God. I will be with you. You see, that's the good news. And because this is true, this is my last point, we can live with hope. We have hope. John Ortberg reminds us that Scripture alternates between hair-raising risk and dangers and assurances of impregnable security. And when we look at the great followers of God, we see that combination. He goes on to write, while the paths we walk and the lives we live might be fraught with challenges, we are not forced to confront them alone. For we know that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God, Romans 8. We have confidence that the maker of heaven and earth stands as guardian, watching over our coming out and going in now and forever. Whatever 2022 is going to be like, we can say it will be well with our souls because of all that Jesus has done for us. We're going to close and we're going to sing it is well with our soul, with my soul. And I've probably said this before, but this song was written by Horatio Spafford. And if you don't know the context of it, he lost a four-year-old son to scarlet fever. He sent his wife and four daughters to England for a vacation. And the ship that they were on had an accident in the sea. And all of his daughters were killed. He lost five children. Only his wife survived. And it's believed that when they got to the precise point where the wreckage happened, the captain summoned him. And that's when he wrote the words that we're about to say. Can you imagine that type of loss and grief and sadness? And to be able to write, it is well with my soul. That's the hope we have because of all that Jesus is. Pray with me. Father, we love you and we bless you. And we pray that your word would sink into the deepest parts of our heart. May the song that we sing 
be true uh, for us, I pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.